Good morning. Let's open in prayer. God, as we continue our journey through the book of Galatians, uh, we were introduced last week to the passion that Paul has for this. The fiery heart that he has around the gospel and what it means and how it changes us, how it impacts our lives. Help us to develop that same passion, that same sense of urgency or significance around what Christ has done for us and the way in which it changes everything. It changes the way we see everything around us, the relationships that we're in, the way in which we go about our lives, the way in which we interact with the world, that all of these things become shaped and transformed by the gift of salvation that we have received, by the kingdom that we are walking into. Work in our hearts as we go through this. In your name, amen. So last week uh, we began a series on the book of Galatians, and we had to make our way through uh, a tricky set of verses um, at the beginning there. Paul is, is passionate, he's angry even, about what is going on uh, in the churches in this region of Galatia. He is riled up about the gospel uh, being distorted because of the teaching of other men, the influence of other men who have come into this church and begun to twist their sense of what uh, the gospel is. The core message of salvation is being twisted, Paul says. The gospel, Paul argues, is simple. Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins. The way I put it last week, the way I've seen it put, is salvation equals Jesus plus nothing. Salvation equals Jesus plus nothing. To add anything more to that, Paul says, then you should be cursed. He calls, he calls down curses on anybody, angel, man, himself, others, anyone who would try and add anything to this gospel message. It's a harsh opening. And it's an opening that shows just how important this is to Paul. And as he continues in the book, uh, as he goes through chapter 1, the book gets autobiographical. Maybe more than any other letter from Paul, he starts to talk about himself uh, and his own story and how he got here and what his history is. He shows how this gospel truth has played out in his own life. Uh, and that's a good tip that maybe you have heard before or you're aware of about, about sharing your faith with people around you. If you want to speak about Jesus to people, if you want to talk about the kingdom of God, if you want to talk about scripture or salvation or these sorts of things, a good thing to do is to talk about your own life. This is something we talked about in Bible college a lot. You can talk about theology till you're blue in the face. You can talk about distinctives on how we believe this or that or the other thing. But if you can speak to the way that your life has been changed and impacted, what this has done for you, uh, that's by far the most effective way to help people understand what it is about this that's important. And so Paul does this. He talks through his own journey. I had to decide, by the way, how closely I'm going to stick 
to my normal sermon rhythms. I know I sort of spelled out the way that I often open sermons, and I'm not sure now if there are bingo sheets or checklists out there that you guys are working with to see if I do this, but I want to warn you, I've thrown off my rhythm a little bit today, so apologies to anybody who that messes up their pastor pool or whatever is going on uh, out in the pews. Uh, but Paul uh, talks to the Galatians about this. He speaks to the Galatians about his own journey. He talks about his conversion experience, how he was somebody who was persecuting the church. He was advancing Judaism and going after these Christians. He deeply cared about Jewish tradition and about law, but God miraculously, supernaturally transformed his heart. And that's key, of course, to the issue at hand, this idea that he's trying to speak to the Galatians, this idea of moving away from reliance on the law and towards an understanding of our salvation in Jesus. He says, this happened to me. This was my experience. I moved away from the law and towards Jesus. And, and he says, this wasn't some sort of social pressure that was put on me. This wasn't somebody else's idea. It wasn't something that I came up with on my own. It came out of an encounter with Jesus Christ, which set me on a completely new path. And, uh, and I encourage you to kind of keep that in your head a little bit. It's something we're going to touch on later. It wasn't from an external group of people that approached him and said, this is now how you need to be. It wasn't something that he sort of generated within himself and made a decision, this is how I'm going to change. It came out of an encounter with Jesus. Paul keeps talking. He talks about his relationship with Peter. Peter, who was the head of the church, who Christ said, on this rock... I will build my church. And in fact, Paul calls Peter Cephas, or rock, in the, in the Bible, kind of poking a little bit at that sort of understanding of who Peter was. And when Peter hears about Paul's conversion, that he's turned from Saul to Paul, uh, Peter and other leaders, they praise God for this miracle. And they commission Peter, and they say, yes, you are an apostle. Go and live as an apostle. Act as an apostle. Speak to people about what God has done. And eventually, Paul goes into missions work, along with Barnabas and Titus, to preach among the Gentiles. And, and Peter kind of acknowledges uh, that Paul is gifted and called to speak to the Gentile people. Peter is called to speak to the Jewish people. Paul will speak to the Gentiles. And, and uh, these pillars of the church, James and Peter and John, they bless Paul, and they commission him, and they send him, and they say, go, connect with these other areas. Connect with the Galatian church. And then we get, in chapter 2, we are by now, we get to chapter 2, uh, verse 11. And that's going to be the start of the section I'm focused on today. Uh, verses 11 to 21. And I'm sorry, um, I set the first chapter up as a bit of a difficult slog that we're getting through, kind of on our way to greener pastures. Uh, but we've still got some tough stuff to get through today. This is a bit of a shocking thing uh, that Paul does here. This is verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So let me expand on this a little bit. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, Peter has a dream. Uh, it's kind of a well-known dream, a famous dream that Peter has, a uh, dream that all of us who like bacon are deeply grateful 
that Peter had because he has a dream uh, where this large sheet is lowered uh, from heaven and got and unrolled in front of him. And on this sheet are all these unclean animals, rabbits and uh, sheep and pigs. And the voice of God commands Peter, kill and eat. Kill and eat these things. I've heard this called Peter's pigs in a blanket dream. And, and Peter resists. He says, no, God, these things are unclean. Uh, but God shows him that Jesus' death has made all foods clean for his followers. That this idea of ritual cleanliness, this is something that we were talking about a little bit in Sunday school today. This idea of ritual cleanliness, doing all the right things, that's no longer how we get close to God. And Peter realizes this, and he has a change of heart, and he starts to eat with these Gentiles. He realizes that just because we're eating different foods isn't a reason to separate from them, that we're united in Christ to Jews and Gentiles. But then these Jewish Christians show up, and they're clearly not in favor of this, the same types of people that are calling for circumcision in this Galatian church. And Peter caves to peer pressure. He steps away from eating with the Gentiles. He's peer pressured back into this old way of thinking, and others come along with him. It says in verse 13, the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, a partner of Paul. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, and we're going to get into what Paul says, but Paul confronts this group. He confronts Peter in front of this group and he calls him out. I cannot imagine what it would have felt like to be in that room. To be in a place where here Paul comes back from his missionary journey and he calls out Peter in front of this group. It must have been an incredibly awkward situation. And this is one of those things, by the way, if you doubt the authenticity or reliability of Scripture the truth of these words, this is one of those stories that gives me deep faith in the truth of the Bible. And that might seem like a bit of a weird thing to say, but, uh, but it, let me walk this out a little bit, if you'll permit me a little bit of a rabbit trail here. If you were writing a book, and you were compiling letters, and you were trying to convince people that Jesus is the way, that he's won victory over sin and death, that he's ushered in a new kingdom, that he's given us new life and new hearts and his Holy Spirit is inside of us, and he's built his people into a body, a unified body under the lordship and headship of Jesus, then surely you would make sure that the leaders of that movement were always presented as unified, that they were always agreeing with each other. The church is starting out and looking to Peter and Paul and the other apostles for guidance, surely you would want to make sure that anything you're putting down on paper, on the record, is going to express over and over again, we're on the same page. We agree. Surely if there were any spats or disagreements or miscommunications, you'd want to plaster over it. You'd want to cut it out. If you were taking this letter and saying it belongs in Scripture, you would be tempted to remove the part where Paul stands up at supper, and calls out the head of the church for getting it wrong, right? One of the things that deeply reaffirms and strengthens my love, my respect for, my trust in the Bible, 
the words of our scripture, is that this sort of thing makes the cut. There was no ego here. There was no editing in order to make people seem better or smarter or more put together than they actually were. Rather, the desire was to honestly and openly speak about the messy, beautiful, complicated way that God works through humans in the church, warts and all. Paul continues here. He says, listen up, you blockhead, to Peter. That's not officially in the letter, but I think you can read between the lines a little bit. You are a Jew, and yet you live as a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, that word, if you're looking in your Bible, has quotations around it. It's sort of a bit of a poke there. We're not Gentile sinners. And so then we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Paul starts to explain the gospel to Peter. That might feel a little bit condescending for Paul to be explaining the gospel to the head of the church. But he's trying to remind Peter, Peter, this is a gospel issue. This isn't some extra thing on the side. This is about what it means to accept Jesus' gift of salvation. It's not about something that we eat or don't eat. It's not about something that we do or don't do. But because we are justified by Christ, because we are declared guiltless, because we receive on ourselves the righteousness of Christ, that's the basis of our acceptance. So let's talk about this a little bit. Maybe give us something to hold on to here. I want to go back to, this is maybe one of my favorite pet topics. Every pastor has these, I'm sure. You're probably already aware of some of the things that I kind of drift back to often over and over again. But this is something I can't get away from. I'm passionate about this. I want to talk a little bit about identity. The biggest question most of us ask, the thing that keeps us up at night as humanity, it's not a new question. It's what is the meaning or the purpose of my life, right? Why do I matter? What am I created for? You could boil it down to a very simple question. Who am I? This is question of identity. And there are really two main ways that we tend to, as humans, build up our identity. So the way that has been most common probably throughout history is what you could call the outside-in way of framing this. So how do you define yourself? Who are you? You define yourself by what you're a part of, the things that exist around you, the external expectations that are placed on you. What club do you belong to? What do other people think of you? What traditions are you a part of? What culture or country or political party or grading system or family do you fit into? And then that defines who you are. The most important thing when you're building an outside-in identity is fitting in, is following the rules, is working in the systems, is making the people around you proud. You do what you do because it's expected. You serve the collective whole. You fight for your country. You honor your parents. You submit to authority. 
uh, in some cultures, in some places, this is referred to as an honor-shame society. If you do what you're supposed to do, that is honored. If you go against what you are supposed to do, that brings shame. And nothing is more important than collecting honor, and maybe even more so, avoiding shame. The rules and systems and traditions of your people are the measuring stick that you use to understand how well you are living up to your identity. And for Paul and Peter, this is the world they lived in. For Jews and many Jewish Christians coming out of that world, the measuring stick was the law. There were hundreds of rules in the Old Testament and thousands of more that have been added by Jewish leaders over the years. And Paul talks about the deep pride he took in what a good Jew he was. The message says, I was so enthusiastic about the traditions of my ancestors that I advanced head and shoulder above my peers. Peter, too, obviously wrestled with this, and he made the mistake of allowing the fear of shame from other Jewish Christians to become more important than eating with and accepting Gentile believers. And this way of forming identity, as you can see it here in this, art, this argument with Peter, this way of forming identity leads to hollow religion. It leads to doing what the group wants you to do instead of what you know to be right. It leads to oppression and to manipulation and to bondage. You get trapped by the expectations of those around you, by what your parents want for you or what your religion wants for you or what your employer wants for you or what your country wants for you. You're a slave to all of these expectations that are around you. So that's the outside-in approach to identity, which, like I said, has been the dominant form of how we form our identity uh, or our self-worth over years. But there is a new way of thinking. It's probably not new, but it's, it's, it's growing uh, in the way that we sort of think that has risen up. Uh, if the first way is an outside-in identity, the flip side, of course, is an inside-out identity. You don't look to others for your identity, you look to yourself. You look inside to understand who you are and what your purpose is. This is, it feels like every kid's movie has this message nowadays, over and over and over again when we watch movies with our kids. This is the message that is given uh, in these movies. It's all around us. I call it the Frozen Principle. What do you think, by the way, is the most watched video of all time on YouTube. Any suggestions or thoughts? What do you think the most watched video of all time on YouTube is? Any guesses? Ben? Not sure? I really drew in the under 10 crowd on this one. Not sure. Okay. It's uh, the most popular video on YouTube of all time is the baby shark dance. The second most popular video of all time, though, on YouTube is Despacito. But, but in the top 100 videos, of YouTube, I really actually thought that this was the top video on YouTube of all time. I was really excited about the point I was going to make. Turns out it just barely cuts into the top 
100. Uh, but the song, Let It Go, from Frozen, has been played on YouTube well over 3 billion times. Now that's only the main video. There are many, many other copies of it out there with hundreds of millions of views. I'm sure if you add it all up, it would beat out Baby Shark. So my point <laughs> still stands here. But it's this song that became this incredible hit. Some of you are going to remember it. Frozen came out in November. It's going to be 10 years now since Frozen came out, which might make some people feel old in this room. Uh, but Frozen is a, a, a story about these two princesses, uh, and this princess Elsa is kind of the, the main character in many ways of this story. And she goes through this journey of transformation, and the centerpiece of this is a song called Let It Go. And for any of you with kids between like 8 and sort of 14, 15 years of age, uh, especially maybe with girls between that age, you have heard this song many, many, many times. When we were living in Mike and Alyssa's basement and Jaden was upstairs, we heard this song many, many, many times over and over again. And the song begins with Elsa, this princess with magical powers who's run away from her castle and she's in distress and she's singing. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. She's expressing the pressure of the outside-in identity, right? Be the good girl you always have to be. Stuff it all down. Conform to expectations. Do what it is that's expected of you by the world around you. She lived in this world that was trying to force her into a box to conform to outside expectations and, and to this new modern sense of identity, this inside-out identity, nothing could be worse than being asked to fit into a box of expectations by people around you. And as she begins to release, there's this big costume change and she lets her hair down and she sings in the second verse. Listen to these words. This is, like I said, this is the message in, in it feels like 9 out of 10 kids' movies. It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's the message of let it go. And the modern world has recognized the limits of the outside-in method. They've correctly realized that the outside-in method of uh, identity can lead to bondage and slavery and being trapped in hollow rules and systems, and so they've rejected it in favor of this relatively new way of thinking about identity, this inside-out method, which says, I get to decide. I decide who I am. My parents don't decide for me. My culture, my race, my gender, these things don't define who I am. I look inside myself, and I figure out how I define myself. And then I will present that identity to the world, and nobody is allowed to critique or push back on it, because this is who I am. It's me. Actually, what this leads to, generally, is a whole different set of problems. I don't know that it does an any better job than that outside-in approach of helping us understand who we are. Because, first of all, it has the potential to create deep mental and emotional issues within us, because if we're in charge of coming up with our own identities, what happens when we look deep inside ourselves and don't like what we see? What happens when we've picked a direction for ourselves and the next week we find out that's not who we want to be after all and we need to pivot somewhere else? Even more than that, 
when we create our own sense of identity, it makes it almost impossible for us to disagree or have discussion with other people, right? Because if you disagree with me on something, then it's not just two of us thinking about an issue, you're attacking my identity. It's personal. And we see this all over social media with all sides having kind of meltdowns when what they think of as their identity is attacked or questioned. It's unstable and volatile and dangerous. And in order to preserve this sense of self-generated identity, we have to fight tooth and nail against anybody who thinks differently. And so you see it over and over again on the internet. I'm on Twitter still, or X, or whatever it's called. Uh, there are a few people that I follow there still. I probably should just drop it, because 99% of what happens on Twitter is people lashing out and getting angry and attacking because they say, how dare you question whatever it is, right? My gender or my religion or my political views or my choices for my family or my opinion on any given topic. And it's no wonder that anxiety levels are ratcheting up in our culture because we're being asked to sustain this, this sense of identity. Paul doesn't address that second form of identity because generally it wasn't a part of his culture. But I think he would look at it as another dangerous way to distort and twist the gospel. Another way to miss the point. To try and add on to what God has done for us. And make it into our own image or our own agenda. So on the one hand you have outside in identity. It's rigid and it's suffocating and it's lifeless. And on the other hand you have inside out identity. And it's unstable and it's isolating and it's anxiety producing. And all of us, I think, if we took some time, can think of ways that we've been formed in both of these ways, that we've been formed by outside-in expectations, that we've been formed by an inside-out identity. Here are the ways that I'll fight against the system and try and be my own person and forge my own way and look inside myself for the strength that I need in order to forge through. And over and over again, we will find that both of these things fail us. And so here we stand, looking at these two ditches and going maybe like Paul says in Romans 7. We looked at Romans 7 in Sunday school today too. He says, this is the message translation. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? How do we break free? In one of the commentaries I was reading on Galatians, the comment was made that we so often run the risk of thinking of the gospel as a diving board, something that we can jump off of in order to escape our past life. Our interaction with the gospel or the good news of Jesus, it's a moment. It's a decision that we make, and then the gospel has served its purpose. It's rescued us, and we move on with our lives. Here's an essential truth, and one that Galatians will try and make over and over and over again through these next chapters. The gospel isn't a diving board. The gospel is a swimming pool. The gospel isn't a diving board. It's a swimming pool. It defines us. It becomes the new way that we interact with and understand everything around us. After speaking about his disagreement with Peter, this journey that he has been on, Paul writes these words, and they could be the centerpiece of the whole book of Galatians. They could be the centerpiece of all of Paul's teaching put together. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. My identity, Paul says, is found in Jesus. Galatians is a book that's very focused on freedom. If you look at commentaries or articles or study guides or sermon series on this book, as I've done, as we've been preparing for this, almost always they have that word freedom somewhere in their title. It's a huge emphasis of the book. And this is what freedom looks like. Paul has admonished Peter saying, you've been caught up in anchoring your identity in something other than Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have no higher identity than this. <laughs> Instead of an outside-in or an inside-out identity, our identity is formed by us living in Christ and Christ living in us. And if we can do that, if we can really do that, if we can really understand that, then we receive all sorts of freedoms from this. And the book of Galatians explores those freedoms. I want to go through a couple of freedoms very simply, quickly here as we close. First, we are freed from shame. We are no longer bound by what we have or haven't accomplished, how we have or haven't measured up, how others are judging us or what others' expectations of us are. To be clear, we are a part of a body that is called to hold each other accountable, like Paul did with Peter. It's one of the core pieces of our community covenant, to hold each other accountable, to be in relationship with each other in that way. But when we are called higher, without Jesus, that can feel like an attack on our identity. With Jesus, it's an affirmation of our identity, saying this is who you are, this is who you are called to be. It's not an attack, it's a calling towards our identity in Christ. Second, we are freed from competition. When our identity is self-generated, when it's based on how good a citizen or a community member or family member we are, then there is constant competition. It's a zero-sum game. It's not just about being good. It's about being better. It's not enough to be smart. You have to be smarter. Life is a game of survivor. If you are winning, that means I am losing. If you disagree with me, that's a threat to who I am as a person. When we are able to take on Jesus as our primary identity, these things begin to go away. Instead of being in competition, we are freed to walk in unity and in fellowship with each other. Third, we are freed from needing to do it on our own. We don't have to carry the weight of salvation on our shoulders. It's not on us anymore. The great stress of that inside-out identity, that, that, that Disney movies are pushing our way, is that it's all on us. We need to look inside ourselves to make it happen, to dig deep. And then, when we fail, that failure rests on our shoulders as well. Paul's promise here frees us because it's not about us anymore or what we can do. It's what Christ has done for us. And fourth, we are freed from lies. The devil loves nothing more than to whisper lies in our ears. Lies that can sound an awful lot like truth if we're not listening carefully. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. Nobody understands you. Everybody is judging you. You're a sinner. You're worthless. Because the gospel is true 
None of those lies hold weight anymore. Because it's not about us. Any sin that we've committed, any shame in our hearts, becomes an opportunity for the grace and the victory of Jesus to shine through. Any shortcoming is an opportunity for the strength of Christ to take control. Any division, like the division between Peter and Paul, becomes an opportunity for the love and reconciliation of Christ to be made known. That's the gospel. That's the pool that we swim in. That's what got Paul all riled up. Why are you turning back to circumcision, to the law, for your justification? You're steering into the ditch. You're falling into old traps. You're abandoning the freedom which has been bought for you through Christ's death and resurrection. I, we, have been crucified with Christ. And we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Amen?